Last time I spoke, it was actually a little while ago, but I talked about the church and it being a group of people where everyone is welcome, everyone is invited to be part of this body of people, the body of Christ and this little representation of it. And also each of us, we looked at in that talk about each of us being a living stone, being built together into a building where God dwells with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. The church is made up of diverse individuals brought together, bound together, held together by Jesus. And I use the analogy then of building a brick wall with a cornerstone and the mortar going right between connecting every stone, every brick to every other. And we look together at a passage from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, a church which was predominantly made up of people who were not Jews, so they were called Gentiles, people who were once excluded from the people of God. God chose the people of Israel, and they felt somewhat exclusive in that calling. And uh, Gentiles were people that Jewish people looked down on. They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't mix with them. They wouldn't even walk through their territory, through their lands. And in the verses leading up to the passage that we looked at there in Ephesians, which talked about Jesus holding the church together, he talks about Jews and he talks about Gentiles. So he's addressing here a predominantly Gentile audience. And this is Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. I'll actually begin at 11 and read part of that verse. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and then jumping to verse 12, were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, Jews and Gentiles, made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility." And that leads us into the passage that we read last time. And for those of you who were here, just a reminder, if you weren't, this is what I was talking about. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Jesus breaks down barriers. He breaks down every barrier that exists in society, every exclusion. He wants to bring inclusion. 2,000 years ago when uh, Paul was writing this letter. He was writing into a culture where there were divisions everywhere, right across society. Jews didn't associate, as I said, with non-Jews, with Gentiles. Slaves didn't mix with those who weren't slaves. Men and women were segregated, not least in religion, but certainly in education and politics. And right across society, very often, men and women would be separate. And Paul is speaking about the unity of God's people, 
because of what Jesus has done. And he summarizes one of his other letters, the letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3, the radical unity of the church in his letter, and he does it this way, Galatians 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We've been brought together by the blood of Christ. We've been reconciled to God and to each other through the cross. Jesus paid the price so that the dividing walls could be broken down. Now we finished last time I spoke with a video of Dr. Lockridge, a black Pentecostal preacher, very powerfully and enthusiastically celebrating Jesus. And as we get into what I want to talk about today, I just want to play a short video of another preacher, a vineyard pastor in Ohio. He's a vineyard pastor, uh, Charles Montgomery. And it's a clip from a talk that he gave to the Vineyard Global Conference that we were at a year ago out in the USA. And he was exhorting the vineyard movement across the world to do all that we can to embrace diversity within the church, making room for people who are very different to ourselves can sometimes be costly. There's a price to pay. We might have to make selfless decisions or sacrifice some of our personal comfort in order to be inclusive. And as Charles exhorted us to pay the price for the sake of others, he talked about Jesus, the one who suffered so that we could be included. And he says it in a way I couldn't begin to. He is one passionate preacher. This is Charles Montgomery. Somebody is unwilling to pay a price. Let me remind you of the price Jesus was willing to pay for you on a hill called Calvary. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which suggests to me the Son of God looked at his Father and said, Father, I'll pay the price to tear the walls down. So he took off immortality, tiptoed down the back stairs of eternity, stepped through 42 generations into the dressing room called Mary, wrapped himself up in mortal flesh and was born in Bethlehem, was wrapped in swaddling clothes, was laid in a manger, was smuggled into Africa, was baptized in the Jordan River, was crucified on Calvary, was buried in the tomb, sealed in the grave, guarded his death, but he lives today and his blood has paid the price. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Charles is a new friend of ours. I am absolutely delighted to say that he will be preaching here at Trent in a few months' time. Jesus paid a price so that the church could be united in its diversity and so that people could have an eternal relationship with him. He voluntarily went to the cross where he took upon himself the hostility between people and God and between people and people. And as we follow Jesus, there will be times when we experience suffering as we pay a price as authentic disciples of his. For the last 15 months or so, I and Debbie also have been doing what is called the spiritual exercises of Saint Ignatius. He was a monk 
in the 15th century, and he wrote some exercises, and probably now millions of people have gone through those things. And, and one of the things that Ignatius encouraged was when engaging with a passage of Scripture to actually imagine oneself being there. When one reads a biblical story, to imagine what it would have been like to have been present actually as one of the characters. Instead of just reading a passage that you might have read before and just skimming through, actually engaging really quite deeply in it. And so one morning I was reading a passage about Jesus entering Jerusalem on his way to the cross, five days before he was crucified. And that passage that morning spoke very powerfully to me as I engaged with it. And I had one just simple thought. And in my journal, I actually drew the thought, and I'm going to explain it visually to you tonight. just want to share with you what I experienced. So I'm going to read the story from Matthew's account. This is Matthew chapter 21. The story of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. What he's saying there is that in the earlier pages of this library of books, there were a number of prophets, prophetic people who predicted things which were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The people of Israel, had read the Scriptures, what is now called the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, which prophesied the coming of the Messiah, referred to here as the Son of David, the one in King David's family line who would bring freedom, would bring salvation to God's people, who would right injustices, and who would bring peace. And they shouted this word, Hosanna, and that word Hosanna, unlike all the rest of the ones I read there in the text, is not translated from the original language. It is in the original language of Aramaic. Hosanna was an Aramaic word, and it essentially means praise God and his Messiah, we are saved. They recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. But they had built up an expectation that the Messiah would lead Israel in conquering its enemies. Specifically at that time, time of Jesus, the Romans were occupying Israel, and uh, they thought, well, the Messiah will free us from this oppression. And Jesus was about to turn their expectations upside down. He was about to fulfill many of the prophecies they hadn't realized 
were about him. If you look through the Old Testament, there are numerous, I don't know how many it is, vast numbers of predictions and prophecies about the one who was to come, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they knew which ones they were hoping to be fulfilled, but Jesus fulfilled a whole lot that they had never expected. He was entering Jerusalem not with a show of military strength on a war horse, but on his way to a very different kind of victory, suffering and humiliation and death on a cross, a victory which would change the world, the pivotal moment in history which would enable not just the Jewish people to be saved, but billions across the face of the earth to come to know salvation. Jesus entered Jerusalem gentle and riding on a donkey, a very deliberate demonstration by Jesus that he was a different kind of king. But the people recognized who Jesus was, and verse 8 tells us that a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. They created this kind of spontaneous red carpet for Jesus on this donkey to ride on. Tom Wright, in his commentary on this passage, writes this, Throwing down your cloak is a very special gesture, especially if the cloak is the only one you've got. It says quite clearly that you are celebrating and valuing this person about as highly as you can. It implies that if need arose, you would give them anything else you had as well. Now, as I meditated on this story, a story that I'm familiar with, as many of you may be, I imagined myself as a character in the, in the story there, as laying my cloak on the road. And I started to think what that would have involved. And I actually bought a cloak online from the Middle East. This is, there are many different types of cloak you'd find in the, uh, from biblical times in Israel. But this would be one, and uh, it would be very similar to this. And there are a number of ways you can wear it. But this would be a typical way. Now, a cloak speaks of identity. It's, it speaks of the kind of person you are. So if you look at the, across society, right at the very top, you would have kings. Kings wore, many of you would know, purple robes. And purple was extremely rare and extremely expensive. Very expensive dyes were made by milking sea snails or crushing the same sea snails. But they would gather these things. And one expert on dyes from the time of Jesus, David Jacobi, wrote this, that 12,000 of these snails yield no more than 1.4 grams of pure dye, enough to color only the trim of a single garment. 12,000 snails. So imagine a king's robe. We're talking 100,000, even as much as 200,000 snails in order to get that color. So the purple cloak of a king, what did it say? It said very, very important and very, very wealthy. Right across society, right at the bottom end, a poor peasant would have a very simple cloak uh, it would probably be, it would be vegetable dyed. It may be some sort of shade of yellow, like ochre through to kind of brick red. It may be slightly green. It may be brown. Very simple dye and quite possibly without any sort of weaving or embroidery and that sort of thing. Further up the scale, you might have tassels 
and the size of those tassels, the complexity of the weaving, that sort of thing, would actually connote where you stood in society. A cloak was something of a status symbol. And most people in those days only owned one. It was a very treasured possession. Second, perhaps, to your house or your donkey, this was your most treasured possession, your cloak. And people would recognize you buy your cloak. They, you know, you only had one. It's not like we today, we have all sorts of outfits, but they'd see you coming. They'd say, well, that, that's John there. He's got that cream cloak with the, you know, the hem there and this certain type of weaving. They'd see me from a distance. Some of you know the story of Bartimaeus. He was a blind man. He sat by the roadside begging. And one day, Jesus came along. He called out. Jesus said, bring him to me. And he jumped up, Bartimaeus, and it says he threw his cloak aside as he came up to Jesus. Now, we don't know whether he ever went back to pick his cloak up, but some biblical commentators talk about this as his identity. Here he was, Bartimaeus. Let's suppose he had a brown cloak. He sat in the same place near Jericho every day begging because he was blind. He'd been there for years. Everyone knew from a distance that's Bartimaeus, the guy in the brown cloak. And there came this moment where he said, I'm putting aside that identity of the blind beggar. I am now free as a follower of Jesus who can see. Um, as we look through the Old Testament, you find a whole number of times when there are rules about what you do with someone else's cloak. Exodus 22, verse 26, for instance, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? So a cloak wasn't just your outfit, wasn't just something that spoke of your identity, it was actually something you slept in. Unless you were wealthy, at the end of the night, the end of the day, you'd wrap yourself in your cloak as you went to sleep. It was your duvet. So, a very precious possession. Now, the road we're talking about in the story here, the road from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, it was steep and it was rough goes down the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem. It is now tarmacked. I've walked on that road. But here's a photo of that road as recently as the 19th century. Still much as it was in biblical times. It's rocky, dusty. There's dung from sheep and cattle and donkeys. And this story happened in Passover week, a major Jewish festival when Pilgrims came from all over Israel, came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover for a period of days. And they're moving, if they're coming from that direction, they're moving down this road. It's jammed with people. And in verse 8, we find it described as a crowd, a crowd of people. Matthew then adds an adjective, a large crowd. He then adds another adjective, a very large crowd is present. Now imagine in the midst of that crush of people laying your cloak on the road. And so people who recognized who Jesus was, they took off their cloak, and ahead of where he was going to go on his donkey, they laid him down on the ground. Verse 9 tells us the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, shouted Hosanna. So part of this very large crowd are going to walk on my cloak, and then Jesus' donkey and its foal, from Matthew's account, followed by the rest of this very large crowd. Thousands of people are about to walk on my cloak. 
Now, I bought two of these cloaks, identical cloaks there from the Middle East, and a couple of weeks ago, I took one to the Lake District, and I found a similar road to the one in this story. And I laid the cloak on the road. And then I took one of my old jewelry tools, a rawhide mallet. It's made of rolled up leather, representing leather sandals. And I took that and I hit that cloak a few hundred times, as though a very large crowd was walking on it. And um, there was I in my motorcycle leathers, in the hot sun, kneeling on this thing, hitting it a few hundred times. And one or two cars passed. It was quite remote, but one or two cars passed. I don't know what they were thinking about what I was doing, but they didn't stop to ask. And at least we end up with a, uh, a physical demonstration for you tonight. So here's the cloak, somewhat changed by the experience of being hit a few hundred times with a rawhide mallet, of being trampled by thousands of sandals. And it's dusty, it's changed color as you can see, it's just now impregnated with dust. There's even some dung in places, real dung from that. And there are, there are holes, don't know how much you can see from where you are, but holes where the fibers have been crushed. One particular place here, you can probably see where just the there was probably a sharp rock under there. Just a number of times that was hammered and it's gone right through and broken the material. This cloak will never look the same. Those who had recognized Jesus as the Savior and expressed their worship of him, they laid down something of their identity. They laid down something which was very precious to them. They laid down this prized possession. And from that point, they were recognized by the marks on their cloak, the marks of being a worshiper of Jesus. I imagine some of them wore their cloaks with confidence. You know, yes, I'm one of those who recognize and follow Jesus as my Lord. People who recognize who Jesus is, people who've chosen to worship him, as most of us here have, we bear the marks of our new identity. We look different to what we used to look like. There is something about us, there is something which people discern in an authentic worshiper of Jesus. Perhaps we even smell different, and this, actually the, the smell has faded. But, you know, we look different, we, we are different through the experience of choosing to follow Jesus. Now let me just ask you, just to take one minute, to think of someone you know is a follower of Jesus, a Christian you admire, what marks do they have which make them different to others? Maybe they've gone through a really difficult season in their life and you just see the peaceful way they're coming through that. Or it could be any number of things. Just stop to think. Imagine someone you really respect who's a Christian. What marks do they have in their life? Let me just mention a few ways as followers of Jesus that we might be different because of our new identity. We might, might answer softly when we're attacked. 
We might spend modestly on ourselves. We don't need purple, after all, while being really generous to others, or indeed generous to the Lord's work. We might be a listening ear to a friend or colleague rather than just being absorbed in our own challenges. We might choose to forgive someone who's really hurt us. Sometimes, you know, we have wounds, smaller things, even major things, and someone who's gone through something really, really painful, maybe just say, you know, with the Lord's help, I'm going to choose to forgive, and the Lord's healing might be brought in that area. We might choose not to take offense when someone says something bad about us. We might choose not to defend ourselves against an unjust accusation. When everyone else at work or at university or at school is gossiping about somebody and being very critical, we might choose not to join in. We might tell the truth, even though we may end up losing money because of it or not advancing in our job or even facing a penalty as a result, we might tell the truth. We might prefer others rather than pushing our own agenda forward. We might serve someone No one may ever see what we've done. No one may ever thank us for it. We might choose to serve. We might be faithful to someone who has been unfaithful to us. In a conflict, we might say sorry first, even though we've also been wronged. We might suffer discrimination or bullying for our faith at school, university, in the workplace, about three weeks ago, I had some personal ministry, and uh, I, I got in touch with some memories of my teenage years where I was quite profoundly bullied at certain points, and primarily because of my faith in Jesus, and actually being the only one standing up for him. And you know, that, that, that's a wound, that, that hurt. And I carry that, it's changed who I am, hopefully for the better, but nevertheless, we carry these wounds. Sometimes we suffer for stuff. Perhaps we invest time in someone who others might choose to ignore. Perhaps we risk embarrassment by offering to pray for someone or to talk about our relationship with Jesus with them. Or we choose to rejoice when someone else is rejoicing when we are in serious pain, maybe even specifically on that very subject that they're rejoicing about. I could mention dozens of others, other marks of a worshiper of Jesus, and you may be thinking specifically of something in your own life that God might want to encourage you in. Some of the marks I've mentioned and you've thought of yourself will be more visible than others. Some are wounds which are not really so much on show, they're hidden. They're hidden in the inner folds and there are wounds that you can't see here. Decisions that we've made and attitudes that we have which only God sees. But whether obvious to others or part of our secret history with God, all these these things affect who we are, not only on the surface, but much deeper too. Following Jesus is the most wonderful and freeing thing anyone can do. Recognizing and receiving Him as our Savior, who has paid the price to break down the dividing walls between us and God, and between us and one another is the most important thing we can do. Salvation 
is found in Jesus Christ. The Messiah came to save the world. And salvation is free. Jesus suffered so that we could be saved. But there is a price that we pay as to quote Jesus, we participate, sorry, we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. There is the reality that part of following Jesus, to quote Paul, is a participation in his sufferings. One of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, wrote this in one of his letters. This is 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Most of us here have recognized the Messiah. We have understood who Jesus is, and we have committed our lives to worshiping him and to following him. And as I finish, I simply want to ask you, as I ask myself, a simple question that you might, as you think of me dressed up in this outfit, as it comes to your mind this week, you might ask yourself this question again. As people look at us, as they observe our lives, what do they see? Do they see the marks of a worshiper of Jesus?